listening to the Business of Baking podcast with Michelle Green, the small business podcast that's all about successfully running your own sweet food company without losing your mind. If you've ever brought dessert to a party and been told you can make a fortune selling those, then you're in the right place. This is an honest, straight-talking podcast about the highs and lows of being in small business. Fueled by late nights, crazy client stories, and a permanent sugar high, we're going to listen, share, and learn our way to sweet business success. Here's your host, writer, speaker, recovering cake decorator, and incurable sweet tooth, Michelle Green. Welcome to the Business of Baking podcast. Today, we're going to talk about embarrassing, ridiculous things I did to get my business to the level I wanted it to be at. And you know what? I'm nothing if not real and truthful. So maybe it's time we kind of lift the lid on how things looked on the outside versus how they look on the inside. All right, let's prepare myself for 10, at least 10, really embarrassing things I did to make my business a success. So I should say that the reason I wanted to talk about this today is because I've recently been advertising my live classes. And for those of you who are keen to come with me, it's bizbakeontour.com. So I've been advertising my live classes and the comments people have been leaving on the ads and on the blog posts about it have been really, really interesting to me because people like to give me every excuse in the world why they're not coming. So some people say things like, um, it's too far. Now, granted, I'm only one person and so I can only go to so many cities, But the people who say that are like one town over from where I'm going to be, you know, like they'll say something like, so as an example, I'm going to Ventura, California, and they'll be like, why aren't you coming to Los Angeles? I'm like, really? It's not that far. (laughs) Or they'll say things like, I can't afford it. And I'm kind of like, well, we do offer a payment plan. And they're like, yeah, no. And they don't bother with a payment plan. Or they say things like, I can't get childcare. Or, you know, they have all sorts of reasons I'm not saying they're not legitimate, okay, but they have all sorts of reasons for why they can't get to this class. Now, I am not in any way implying that this class is your only key to success, and if you don't go, you won't be successful. That's just rubbish. But I find it really interesting how often people make excuses for their lack of success, or they make excuses for why they can't take either their business or their life to the next level. And I have to say that it's really forced me to look back on my life as a business owner and you know now as a blogger and think about all the kind of insane, crazy things I did to get where I wanted to go. You know, I had a really clear vision for my business. I had a really clear vision for my life and I wanted to get there. And so I did crazy stuff. Now, not necessarily super brave. I'm not necessarily super wealthy. I'm not necessarily super special. I just kind of felt like if I wanted to get where I wanted to go, I had to use all means necessary. And I really wanted to share with you guys some of those ways that I got places. And I also wanted to share with you that one of the students who came to my recent Melbourne class, um, I had a bit of a rant on Facebook about this. Rare for me, I'm not a ranter, but I had a bit of a rant on the fact that, you know, at some point you need to make a decision about how much your success is worth to you. You know, how much are you, how, how far are you willing to go in order to achieve what you want to achieve? And one of my Melbourne students replied to that and commented that, look, she's a single mom. She couldn't afford to, um, to pay for breakfast, so she came to my class and brought her breakfast with her, like literally brought like fruit packs or whatever, so she didn't have to buy breakfast. She had to use three separate people to babysit her kids for the weekend while she was away so that she can come, because none of them could do just the whole weekend, so she had to like use her mom from 8 till 12 and somebody else from 12 to 4 or whatever. 
to look after her little kids. Um, she actually paid me week by week, literally $50 at a time for months and months and months on end just to be able to afford to come to the class. I mean, she went to, and, and she suffers from um, some medical illnesses as well, and she just went to incredible lengths to get there. And I not only honor her determination and her willingness to be there, and obviously I'm so flattered that she would put so much effort, but she's a real example of somebody who went, you know what, I need to get there, so by all means necessary. So today I wanted to share some kind of like, I guess sort of funny, silly, or somewhat ridiculous things that I did to get my business to where I wanted to go, because I think sometimes you just have to make it happen, you know? So the first one, and I find this really... <laughs> This is like, honestly, like sometimes I did stuff that I like shake my head and I'm like, really? What was I thinking? That is just <laughs> ridiculous. So one of the things I did is at the time that I started my, my cake career, I didn't know that you could just call yourself a cake maker. I thought you had to go to pastry school and it was important. Education is important to me. So I wanted to go anyway, but I needed a job in pastry, right? Because we could not afford for me to just go to pastry school full time and not work. And so I wanted to work as a pastry chef. And so I got my very first pastry job with my cake portfolio. So I had taken, and maybe this doesn't sound so crazy, but just hear me out. I took all the photos of cakes that I had made for family and friends. And the photos, by the way, were terrible. And the cakes were terrible. And a bunch of those photos were like in the box on top of my stove. Like side note, why do we take photos of cakes on top of our stove? It makes no sense, but whatever. You know, there was like pictures of my kids in it. I had no backdrop. I mean, just the worst photos you can imagine. But I kind of cobbled that together into portfolio and I applied for my first pastry job. I had no real experience. I had no, I'd never, oh my God, I'd never like cooked an actual pastry, like commercially in my life. I'd made like one pie, you know, like at home, but I never made thousands of croissants. And I basically completely walked into that job saying, here's my cake portfolio. Here's what I'm capable. Here's what I can do. And she was like, so, you know, can you make pies? I'm like, yeah, I can totally make pies. Now I didn't lie. You know, the truth is I can make a pie. Can I make hundreds in an hour? Well, not at that point, but it was my cake portfolio that got me into pastry work in the first place. And it remains to this day, one of the best jobs I've ever had really. And I loved it. And I learned so much, but unless I'd had the willingness to apply for something I didn't really qualify for and to bring whatever I had, which in this case was a case cake portfolio, I never would have gotten that job. And women chronically do not apply for jobs that, you know, there's like some statistic, which is like men will apply for a job. They're only 70% qualified for, but women feel they need to be a hundred percent qualified before they apply. But I was so determined to get there that I did not let that be an issue for me. I was just like, I'm just going to go for it. I'm going to bring in what I've got. And I think that's the lesson in that. You just sometimes have to bring what you've got and hope for the best. And that's really all I did. But once I had that pastry job and my cake portfolio and I was like, basically every day I went to work, I was just pretending I knew more than I did, which can I tell you is kind of exhausting, but it also forces you to learn really, really, really quickly. So one of the other things I did is while I was working as a pastry chef, I was still doing orders for people, but I didn't understand that you could buy cake boxes at cake decorating stores. I don't know why that didn't occur to me. And now that I say that out loud, I feel like a complete idiot really, but I didn't know that you could like walk into a cake decorating shop and just buy a box. So I used to, <laughs> I used to walk into local bakeries and local patisseries and tell them that my kids had a school project and they needed a cake box for the school project. <laughs> 
So for like a year, I was buying cake boxes, like one box at a time from places, but I couldn't go to the same place twice because then, you know, obviously the jig is up. How many, how many school projects can my kids have that like require a cake box? But I literally, it was ridiculous. I used to be like, hi, look, I know this is a strange request, but my kids have the school project and I need a cake box for the school project. I'm wondering if you wouldn't mind giving me one. But of course, I always needed one that was a specific size, right? And so I had to be like, yeah, so the project requires a 10 inch square box or whatever it was. And some places would give it to me for free and other places would be like, I don't even know what to charge you. I don't know, maybe a dollar, you know, whatever. But for like a year, I was just like using cake boxes from like every, every shop in town. And the worst is, of course, stupid me would like do it in my own neighborhood. So it was not unusual for me to go back to a bakery like, you know, a month later or whatever, because I wanted to buy stuff. And they'd be like, hey, how did that project go? And I'd be like, yeah, it went great. Thanks so much for your help with that box. Honestly, by all means necessary, man. Sometimes you got to just do crazy stuff, right? I needed boxes. That's how I got them. I eventually did learn, by the way, that you could buy them both wholesale and in cake decorating shops, but it took me a while to, to figure out that thing. Look, some of these things I'm a little bit embarrassed about, but the truth is they got me where I needed to go. So, you know, who cares? Some of them were super clever though. So as an example, um, here in Australia, when you have a mobile phone number, it looks different. The digits look different to a normal mobile number. So, uh, no, sorry, a normal phone number. So, for example, in the U.S., a phone number for a landline and a phone number for a mobile look the same. The digits look the same. But in Australia, they don't. You know if you're calling a mobile phone number because the digits are different. And I didn't want to have my mobile phone number on the website and have people think that I was some Mickey Mouse operation, even though, to be honest, it was a Mickey Mouse operation with just me running the whole joint. So I applied to get a 1-300 number. In the US, you guys might call these 1-800 numbers, which is like a toll-free number. Because I was like, well, if I have a 1-300 number, that makes me look immediately more legit. And if I need to move my business, no big deal. I can move that 1-300 number a lot easier than I can move a business number. So I called the phone company and I applied for this 1-300 number and whatever, but I had a problem because <laughs> I was running the business from home and then I was running it from a shared kitchen and then I was running it from a shop and at no point did I have access to an actual, until I got to the shop, uh, did I have access to an actual landline. So <laughs> I got the phone company to divert the 1-300 number to my cell phone. And so every time you called that 1-300 number, you were calling my cell phone, which means that I was answering it in all kinds of places. But I wanted that number to make me seem bigger than I was. And it absolutely worked. That phone number gave me a legitimacy much more than a mobile phone number ever would, particularly back in that day when mobile phones were not as prevalent as they are now. I think now to see a mobile phone number for a business, again, I still don't think it necessarily makes you feel trust in them, but it's not as big a deal. At the time, it was, I just wanted to seem bigger than I was. And the same, by the way, I did the same thing with my address. So the address of my first commercial kitchen read like a, uh, uh, it was uh, 49 John Street, and it read like a domestic address. And so when I had just that address and just my normal cell phone number all the time, people would kind of call me and say, oh, is this a home-based business? Or they'd kind of drop by and try to come and like visit me or whatever. And obviously there was no, it was a commercial premises. There's nothing you could drop by into. So I changed my address to be kitchen number four, 49 John Street or whatever. And yeah, well, technically it's true. I was kitchen number four in that building by adding that in 
it made the business seem much, much bigger than it were. They didn't need to know that it was me still buying flour and sugar from the supermarket. Once I had their 1300 number and I had a much more mature sounding address, people took me a lot more seriously. And the advantage of people taking me more seriously is that I could charge more. So it, it worked really well. So sometimes it's about giving an impression that you are more legitimate than you are. Now, some people like refer to their business as me or I versus we or us. And, you know, that one I kind of feel like is not, you know, that's personal preference, whether you refer to we when it's really just you. But again, it's one of those things that you want to engender trust in your customer, right? So for me, I wasn't lying about that phone number. I wasn't lying about the kitchen number. But by using the one three hundred number and the different address to my advantage, I was giving people the impression that I was a legitimate business, which I was. I mean, the truth is, does the size of my business really matter? No, I was legitimate either way. But this way, it engendered trust with them. So one of the other things I used to do... <laughs> <laughs> is every time I went to like a restaurant or somewhere where I liked the, the cake or whatever, I would constantly ask places for recipes. <laughs> I had no shame, right? But I would say that I needed the recipe or I needed to know the ingredients because I had an allergy or I had a sensitivity to this thing and I needed to know exactly what was in it. Now that I think about this, this makes me an awful person because there are real people out there for whom allergies are a major issue. But I was asking for those recipes and those ingredients because I thought whatever they did was genius and I wanted to copy it. So if they wouldn't give me the full recipe, by the way, many places would, much to my extreme shock. Uh, but I would ask, can you just tell me all the ingredients that are in it? Now here in Australia, I think there's actually like labeling requirements and stuff, but I'm talking about things like restaurants, cafes, whatever. And if I had, a, like if I went to a cafe and they were like, oh, we don't make that here. I'd say, oh, well, could you let me know who your supplier is? And I'll just get in contact with them and ask them. <laughs> when I think about it now, I asked some pretty cheeky stuff, man. But you know what? Nine times out of 10, people would happily give me that information. So it was useful. That's how I found a number of my suppliers from my ingredients later is I knew that these companies were using them and therefore they were reputable. That reminds me a little bit of uh, just recently, I was listening to another podcast, which I love and I highly recommend you listen to called How I Built This from NPR. It's seriously the most amazing podcast that ever was. And yesterday I listened to an episode where he was interviewing the owner of Five Guys Burgers and Fries, which is a big uh, fast, I don't, think, I don't think you'd call them fast food, but they're a big burger chain in, in the United States. And the owner was talking about, this guy named Jerry, was talking about how when they started the business, they needed to find suppliers. So they went to a place called, I think it's called Thrasher's, which sells boardwalk fries, which is, I don't know, some sort of fancy fries, I guess. And they went there and they noticed that although there were several people selling boardwalk fries, Thrasher's had the best, like, product and people were like lining up to eat these fries. So they noticed the name of the potato uh, company on the bag of potatoes sitting at Thresher's and that's who they called and said, hey, can you supply us with potatoes? And uh, Guy Raz, the host of NPR, says to this guy, I don't get it. What's so special about these potatoes? And the guy goes, well, nothing other than the guys selling the best fries in town were using them. So we wanted to use them. And it's kind of like that, right? If somebody else is already using that supplier and it's working great for them, why do you have to reinvent the wheel, right? Certainly when you start out, if you don't know where to start out, 
let somebody else do the work for you and just go with that. Do you know what I mean? You don't have to necessarily reinvent things all the time. Now, subsequently, I did change suppliers on some things, but my easiest way to do anything is those guys are successful. Let me see what about their business or their business model I can be inspired from or use the same one of or whatever. I'm not saying don't be original. I'm saying sometimes when it comes to figuring out where you're going to get your potatoes, just figure out where somebody else is getting it and go from there. It's always a good start. So that was kind of like me with asking for the recipes. Like, oh, where'd you get that? And, oh, what supplier did you use? And I think if you're sincere and you're nice, you know, people will give you information when you ask for it. Yeah. I feel like this is like making me sound like the worst human being ever. But I guess I just, you know what? I wanted so much for this business to be a success and it was so important to me. And so I did crazy stuff to get where I wanted to go. I never did anything illegal or anything. You know, I just kind of did what I had to do to get where I wanted to be. Yeah. So then um, maybe this next one might be illegal. I'm actually not entirely sure. But anyway, so to buy things here in Australia from uh, like cake decorating tools and stuff is really expensive, like crazy expensive because it's all imported. And then obviously it has like import tax and whatever on it. And then obviously people put money on top of that because they're trying to make a living. So um, I like a lot of American cake decorating products. And so I was like, all right, well, how am I going to do this? I want this stuff, but it's so super, super expensive. And so what I used to do is I used to go and visit my family in America because I was born and raised in Los Angeles. I used to like go visit my mom and stuff. And when I got there, I would walk into Michael's and I would walk into Joanne's and I would walk into cake decorating shops and I would buy ocean loads of product massive like 10 ounce bottles of Mary color and not even gonna lie I bought like 10 Wilton rolling pins and turntables and like heavy crazy stuff right airbrush machines I bought an airbrush machine directly from copy cake in uh, southern California like all sorts of crazy stuff right and I would fill up a suitcase and I would drag it back to Australia now I never resold it I used it for my own purposes like all those turntables and rolling pins I used for my students or whatever. But it was cheaper to buy that stuff retail in the US than it was to buy it here in Australia, even after you did the conversion. So I just made it happen. And it was not at all unusual if I heard about friends or family going back and forth between Australia and America, I'd be like, can I just give you this shopping list and get you to buy this stuff? My poor mom in particular, (laughs) because she comes and visits us once a year. And my mom is not a baker at all. Like she struggles with box mix. And I'd be like, so can you walk into the store and I need you to buy a tulip cutter that's six and a half inches by whatever, whatever. And she'd be like, oh my God. So what she used to do is she used to like print my list out from my email and just dig it into these stores and hand it to a sales associate and be like, can you just put all this stuff in a box for me? And so I brought it all back. It saved me a ton of money. I got to use the product I like. And you know what? Everybody was happy. I always felt kind of bad for not supporting local business, but I couldn't afford it. Literally the price of a 10 ounce bottle of a Mary color in the U S retail was like a quarter of the price of just buying like one of those one ounce ones here. I, I couldn't justify it. You know, look, to be honest, a lot of our businesses is just kind of a figured out kind of situation. I need this thing. How am I going to get this thing? Right. It's about working your way over it, under it, around it, whatever. If you can't go straight through it, you have to find another way around. And like many people, I spent a lot of my business feeling like I was a fraud and I didn't know what I was doing, but I also was so focused on getting there that it was by all means necessary. What have I got to do to get where I want to go as long as it's not illegal or hurting anyone? 
And perhaps one of the scariest things I did was I took a lease on my first commercial kitchen and I didn't have the real money behind it. So I was able to pay the first month's rent through my savings or whatever, but I didn't have the money for subsequent months of rent. And for anybody who's, who sat in one of my classes and heard the story, the gist of it is that the second month I paid my rent using my tax refund. And by the third month I had made enough to cover the rent, but I got into a situation where I had this big commercial property and I mean, not big, but big to me. And I had absolutely no money to pay for it. If you ever heard that expression, you know, leap and then it will appear or what's the other one? It's like jump and build the parachute on the way down or whatever. You know, I am not really a believer in that because by nature, I know it's not sounding like it, but by nature, I'm actually pretty cautious and relatively risk averse. But sometimes in life, actually a couple of times in my life, things have happened where the compulsion to do that thing is so strong that I can't not do it. So while I'm not somebody who likes to take risks and do crazy stuff and, you know, whatever, sometimes the voice inside of you is so loud that you can't ignore it anymore. You just you just can't not do that thing or chase that goal or whatever. And for me, all of these things were about that. That voice inside of me was saying, you have to build this thing, Michelle. You have to make this thing happen. And so, you know, I did crazy stuff, like agreed to move my whole business into a commercial property I had no money for because I just had to keep the faith, I guess, that things would all work out in the end, you know? I did all kinds of other stuff. So let's see, what else I do? Um, I mystery shopped my own kid's birthday cakes. <laughs> so this isn't crazy at all. And I actually think all of you guys should do this. But one of the reasons I went into business is because my kids were turning one year old. And I had found some, this is 100% true. I'd found some napkins that I really liked that said like happy first birthday or whatever. And I wanted to get a cake that matched. And so I, this is why I went into business, but I subsequently then went and did this several times. So I started contacting a number of cake and bakeries around me saying, got this napkin. Can you make a novelty cake to match the design on this napkin? And everywhere I went told me no. I think I called maybe six or seven places and they all told me no. And that in part is what made me go, you know what? I need to create a business where people can have whatever they want. I need to create a business where people can say, hey, I have this design. Can you copy it? Hey, I have this invitation. Can you be inspired by it? Hey, I have this dress. Can you create a cake that highlights, you know, the beauty of the dress or whatever? So in part, that really informed my choices about what my business was going to be like, and particularly cakes for kids. That was a big thing for me. But I did this again later on. So anytime I had a cake that I genuinely needed for myself, I would use that information to mystery shop the cake companies around me. And why that works really well is because I, it was a real cake. I actually really needed it for a real date to feed a real amount of people. I had real preferences, you know, chocolate over vanilla or whatever. And because it was a real order, I could actually more accurately assess what was going on. And my suggestion for you is that if you're going to mystery shop and I recommend that you do do this because you need to know what your customers can get out in the world other than you. So if you do do this mystery shopping thing, pick a single order real or not and use that as kind of the benchmark. Like don't try to mystery shop different orders against different people because you can't really compare that way. Either create a fake order in your head or have a real order in your head and then go out and mystery shop that one. That one actually worked really, really well for me. 
And in fact, like I was telling you how trying to get this napkin match kind of informed the rest of my business. I also, in the early days of my business, I agreed to make crazy stuff that I had never made before. So at the time I agreed to my first cupcake order, I'd never made cupcakes ever. That, well, not that I can recall anyway, because cupcakes were only just starting and I wasn't interested in cupcakes. I was interested in making cake. And so I agreed to make cupcakes even though I'd never made them before. And I just kind of threw my normal cake batter in there and hoped that it worked. By the way, it does. <laughs> so that was good. But same thing. I took an order for cake pops, having never made cake pops before in my life. And I'm pretty sure I YouTubed it or I read Bakerella's blog and figured out how to do it. You know, like chocolate covered pretzel rods, chocolate dipped strawberries, all sorts of things people asked for. I just said yes. Pies on a stick, you know, weird 3D whatevers. I mean, I just kind of agreed to pretty much everything. I guess my thinking was, well, I've got to try it, right? And if this turns out to be something that's easy and good and fun and whatever to make, well, then maybe I can turn this into something. And nine times out of 10, I did turn it into something. Although sometimes I would try stuff and go, I am never making these suckers ever again. Oh my God, they're terrible. <laughs> right. But I just agreed to stuff that in retrospect, maybe I shouldn't have agreed to all of it, but I figured, well, why not? Right. All right. So this next one is uh, actually the next two are, I don't know if they're brave, embarrassing or stupid. Maybe they're like all of the above, but again, by all means necessary. So for a brief period of time, when I started my cake business, I had on my flavor list, <laughs> every flavor of cake I could think of that sounded kind of good. So like orange poppy seed and lemon and, you know, all carrot cake and red velvet and whatever, like the vast majority of which I've never baked in my life. But I was like, this is the kind of stuff people are going to want to order. So this is what I'm going to go with. So one of those items <laughs> was a banana cake. Now I don't particularly like banana cake. I think banana bread is nice, but banana cake is just like banana bread with more sugar. And I don't see the point of that. And frankly, like yuck, <laughs> I don't quite get banana cake. It's just, it's a weird thing. What is that about? So anyway, I had this as a, as a flavor on my list. And in the early days of my business, you know, I didn't have orders every week. Sometimes it'd be like one week I'd have two orders and the next week I'd have none or whatever. So I wasn't baking every week. And one week, <laughs> I'm laughing about this because it's like, it's like embarrassing. It's like embarrassing laughing. Anyway, one week, this woman ordered uh, a cake and she's like, I want banana cake. I'm like, oh man, I've never made banana cake before. I didn't tell her that. I'm like, I've never made banana cake before. I don't feel like it. You know, sometimes this is terrible, but you know when you don't have orders for a week or two and you're kind of glad and then somebody's like, okay, I want these like 10 things. You're like, oh man, I got to bake again. <laughs> and you kind of get lazy and you don't want to. I was a little bit like that. And she was my only order that week. So there was a local cake company that used to sell cake. Um, they used to sell like slab cakes uh, into the hospitality industry. So for example, they would sell slab cakes into like, um, companies that provided lunch for their employees, right? You guys have all seen these, right? It's like a slab of cake with like a little bit of icing on top and then like some, like almost no decoration, maybe like a handful of walnuts or whatever. And they cut it like into squares. It's like school lunch type stuff, right? So that was the kind of thing that they sold, but they also sold that stuff retail. <laughs> so I went in there and, but mind you their cakes were only like an inch and a half high right so I went in there and I'm like hi I was just wondering will you guys do you guys make banana cake and they're like oh yeah it's one of our best sellers I'm like oh all right, well this is good right because if it's a best seller it must mean that it's all right 
so not a word of like this is just embarrassing but whatever i ordered banana cakes from them with no icing and no decoration like just the cake part and i think i paid it's something really dumb but i think it was like eight dollars a slab it was stupid cheap but at the same time stupid expensive because if i'd made that cake myself it wouldn't cost me eight bucks but anyway and i bought like several slabs and i whacked those slabs together and in fact they only sell them in those rectangles so i had to cut the circle out because her cake was round and i made i did make my own icing and i had to stick it together and basically i used their banana cake and the feedback was that she loved it and it was fantastic but i was also claiming to be a scratch bakery so I think there's some like moral and ethical things about that which are probably not a great idea other than to say the customer was happy in the end i was happy with the product because i did taste it before i gave it to her and she got what she wanted and everybody was happy but i did subsequently that then that did actually encourage me to take off my menu anything that i no longer wanted to sell or i no longer wanted to or couldn't or didn't need or didn't have to source from others. So I ended up <laughs> taking most of those flavors off my website. Cause I'm like, if I don't feel like baking them, they shouldn't be on here. So I'm pretty sure she was my one and only banana cake recipient. Uh, and that company, by the way, has since uh, moved away. I don't know if they still exist, but they've since moved away, but kind of sad that you know, I was too lazy to bake. And so, but I had to fill this order right? Mind you, if any of you guys came to me with this now, I'd be like, you cannot be that lazy. Are you serious? If you say it's scratch bake, it's got to be scratch bake. So it just goes to show you that, you know, with age comes wisdom and perhaps a little bit more uh, morality there. I honestly, when I think about that now, I'm actually really embarrassed about the fact that I just didn't bake one single cake for this lady, like seriously, except that I'd never baked banana cake before and I didn't have a recipe that I know worked. So it probably would have been a fair amount of experimentation before I got to do one that I, th I was happy with, whereas these guys were already selling it and it was already working for them. So, you know, no excuses. Truly, I should have just baked the damn thing. But anyway, <laughs> and the last embarrassing story I have for you guys is one that, you know what? Okay, it's embarrassing, but I'm also like kind of proud of it in like a really ridiculous way. So I had a lady who used, I used to outsource my flower making to uh, another woman because she was way more talented at it and way faster than I was and way less expensive than me doing it myself. But I used to, the disadvantage of working with her is I had to go and pick this stuff up and she lives quite far away. So one day I went and I picked up some flowers and products and whatever from her and I put them in the trunk of my car and I'm driving away. And like I said, she, she lived quite far away from me and I'm driving away and I am going down the freeway at a gajillion miles an hour. And suddenly I realize that the car has no power. I'm like, I'm pressing the gas and the car's moving forward, but like nothing's happening. It's like, it's as though the, all of a sudden the gas doesn't work. And I realized that the car has lost all power and all the lights have turned on. And basically this car is just coasting down the road. And I'm like, Oh, oh my god right and so i managed to pull over enough lanes that i was just near the side and then i managed to pull over onto the side like the emergency lane or whatever just in time for the car to die like i rolled into that side thing and for all this smoke i guess it might, maybe it was steam i don't even know if it was steam or smoke whatever it was billowing out of the front of the car and i'm sitting in this tiny little mazda 121 and the car just goes boof and like the whole front is like, you know, like steam or smoke or whatever it was. And I'm like, oh my God, it's like a million degrees. And I'm sitting in this car with like flowers, <laughs> old, old, like drunk full of flowers. Oh my God. 
So I was safe and I was on the side of the road. And so I called, I called the automobile club to come and get me. And they're like, we're really sorry, but it's like a 45 minute wait. So just as long as you are safe and you're, you know, in a safe place or whatever, we'll come and get you as soon as we can. I'm like, okay, cool. That sounds great. Right. Anyhow, I'm sitting there. I mean, what are you going to do? Right. It's not like you can, I don't know. This is before smartphones, right? This is like normal mobile phones. It's not like I could like play Panda Pop or something. So just like sitting there bored out of my mind. And then the phone rang, the one 300 phone number rang, AKA my mobile phone in my hand on the side of the road. And I'm like, hello? And the person's like, hi, I was just wondering if I could place an order for a dozen cupcakes or whatever. And I'm like, oh my God. Uh, Okay. I guess I was thinking, you know what? I'm in a closed car. Like they they could maybe hear a little bit of traffic going by, but you know, I got nothing else to do. So I scramble around in my car to get like some receipts or whatever. And I'm like fully writing down this person's order on like the back of the receipt. And I just thought to myself, this is like insanity. Now, I don't know what happened. I don't know if it was like a full moon that day or the gods were laughing at me or what. But I hung up with that person and like two minutes later, the phone rings again. And sitting in my car waiting for the automobile club, I took, I think it was like three orders. Just sitting there in the car with these, you know, cars whizzing past at like a bajillion miles an hour. And I'm like going, oh my God. <laughs> so I take these three orders on like the back of receipts or whatever. I didn't have any paper with me. I wasn't like expecting to do this, right? It was like on napkins, whatever I had in the car. Anyway, so the tow truck guy <laughs> comes and he's like, hi, you know, I'm, I'm here to rescue you, whatever. I'm like, okay, great. And so like I get out of the car and he goes, to, <laughs> he goes to put the car on the back of the truck. I'm like, no, you can't do that. And he's like, why? And I'm like, because if you put the car at an angle, then all the flowers in the back are going to get crushed. And he's like, flowers? What are you talking about, lady? And I'm like, can you just wait? And he's like, all right. So I open the trunk of the car and obviously they were all boxed up and whatever. I literally take all these boxes of flowers out of the car. I stick them in the cab of the truck at the front. And the guy's like, okay, lady, whatever. And he starts helping me. And we like empty it all and put it into the front of his truck. I'm like, okay, now you can put the car on the thing. So he puts it on the thing or whatever. <laughs> and I hop in the front of the cab of his truck or whatever. And he's like, what's in all these boxes? And the whole way home, I'm like, so I'm a cake maker and these are flowers and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like taking orders. <laughs> and he's just a little bit like the guy, the tow truck guy is looking at me like, lady, you are insane. But listen, I had nothing else to do. I'm on the side of the road. Like, what's the big thing, right? Anyway, we get to the mechanic, which was actually around the corner from the shop, and we dropped the car off, and he fully helped me walk the flowers back to the shop. He was the nicest tow truck guy ever, right? And now, in retrospect, it seems a little bit crazy. Like, what was I doing, taking orders on the side of the road and whatever? But I guess, you know, in each of these situations, you know, taking on a lease with no real money and taking on the pastry job with a kind of slightly dodgy cake portfolio and you know asking places to buy boxes because my kids had some mysterious (laughs) secret school project which was so mysterious and secret it didn't actually exist you know all of it led me to where I wanted to go right the big picture of succeeding in business and turning that shop into what I wanted it to be was so much more important than the little details. And I think we spend a lot of time on the details. You know, we're, we're makers and we're decorators and we're creators and the details mean a lot to us. And we spend a lot of time with our nose only a few inches from what it is we're creating. 
And I think when you have a job like that, it's really easy to get caught up in that. It's really easy to be like, this is what is important is the details. And I'm not for a second suggesting that that's not important. But once in a while, you just have to go, you know what? The details aren't as important as the getting there. The getting there is more important. And so maybe I need to maybe I need to have the overall goal of the getting there and not the overall goal of it working exactly as I want and the details of which I want. And so, you know, I just look at these people who say things like, I can't go to this class because I haven't got the money. And I'm like, well, could you have one less latte a week and pay it off in an installment plan of $3 a day or whatever? Could you, you know, I don't know, beg, borrow, steal the money, whatever you've got to do. You know, people who tell me they haven't got babysitters, I'm like, well, bring the kid with you or bring a friend with you or bring whatever, you know. As a business owner, I try to be as flexible and as reasonable as I can, but I often find that the person at the other end is so caught up in the details that they're not looking for the solution. They're looking for, you know, they're, they're looking for the roadblocks as opposed to looking for the detours. And I think in life, you know what, you get a whole lot further when you look for the detours. And sure, maybe sometimes it means you're doing sort of crazy, insane stuff, but it's the crazy and insane stuff, which means you get where you need to go. And that is the important thing. It's, you know, not so important how you do it as it is that you do do it. And so I hope that today's podcast with me telling you all this kind of, you know, I did way more insane stuff than this, by the way. I just tried to pick things that I thought were a good example of some little things and some not so little things, which really got me to where I want to go. And I hope that you're inspired. Next time you come across a roadblock, I hope you're inspired instead to find a detour because the detours still lead you where you want to go, even if it's not quite the way that you intended. Keep on being awesome and have a great week. Thanks for listening to the Business of Baking podcast. You can find show notes, links, and other fun stuff for this and previous episodes at thebizofbaking.com. Until next time, may your oven stay evenly hot, your ganache never split, and may you always be in the business of being awesome.